Glenn. Our listeners are here. Great. Y'all come on in. I see we have some new folks here. Hello to one and all of you. This is Linda, and I'm Glenn Dawson, and we're delighted to have you here on Preparing Our Hearts for Worship podcast. This week, we're doing Just As I Am, and it was more than a favorite hymn of Billy Graham. It became almost more than any other hymn, a sort of national anthem for evangelical Christians, a musical creed that spelled out in simple terms the life-changing spiritual transaction between the sinner and the Redeemer. It was written by Charlotte Elliott, 1935, and the tune was composed by New Englander William Bradbury. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not, to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict and many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, with welcome pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down, now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am of that free love, the breadth, length, depth, and height to prove. Here for the season, then above, O Lamb of God, I come. Charlotte Elliott was born in Brighton, England, on March 18, 1789. Her father was a silk merchant, and her mother was the daughter of a preacher. During her childhood, she was afforded the better things in life and raised in a Christian home. She received the best education and had a passion for music and art. Yet during her young years, she could not accept the fact that she could come to the Father with all her sins. She struggled with the fact of her unworthiness and felt she could not come before a perfect and loving God with her imperfect life. Miss Elliot wrote about 150 hymns and many poems of which were printed anonymously with just as I am probably the best known. Dr. Billy Graham wrote that the Graham Crusade team used this hymn in almost every one of their crusades. He said it presented the strongest possible biblical basis for the call of Christ. Historian Kenneth Osbeck wrote that just as I am had touched more hearts and influenced more people for Christ than any other song ever written. Christian writer Laura Lorella Roster, that he always liked to speak of his master and only hoped that one day she would come to know him as her savior and be a worker for Christ. A few weeks after this encounter, they met again, and Charlotte explained that ever since he had posed the question, 
she had not been able to get it off her mind. She explained she did not know how to come to Christ. Dr. Malin replied, Come just as you are, believing on Jesus as your personal Savior. She gave her life to Christ that day. Some years later, at age 45, Charlotte remembered those five words and began to write the seven verses of Just As I Am in 1834. Despite being raised in a Christian home, she reflected on her conflicts with doubt and was unsure of her relationship with Christ. So she penned her words of assurance about Jesus loving her just as she was. Sometime afterwards, she related her experience to a friend and showed him what she had written. Somehow the lines got into print in 1849, and eventually people began singing them to a tune composed by a New Englander, William Bradbury. This hymn has been translated into many languages all over the world. Tens of thousands of people have committed their lives to Christ during the playing of this hymn. Miss Elliot wrote about 150 hymns and many poems, some of which were printed anonymously, with Just As I Am probably the best known. Dr. Billy Graham wrote that the Graham team used this hymn in almost every one of their crusades. He said it presented the strongest possible biblical basis for the call for Christ. Historian Kenneth Osbeck wrote, that just as I am had touched more hearts and influenced more people for Christ than any other song ever written. Christian writer Lorella Hoster wrote, The hymn is an amazing legacy for an invalid woman who suffered from depression and, and felt useless to God's service. If there is one hymn that is sung more often than any other while the preacher is inviting people to come forward, it is Just As I Am. Probably more people have accepted Christ with strains of this old hymn ringing in their ears than any other gospel song. Just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee O Lamb of God I come I come Some hesitate to come as they are they think they're not fit to come They want to dress up first. They think they must get rid of their bad habits or make restitution or do something else before they can come. That's like a drowning man who can't swim but who keeps struggling in a vain attempt to save himself. The lifeguard can't save him until he settles down. You can't save yourself. God does not ask you to. All he asks you to do is if you're not saved, just let him do it. Just confess your need for salvation and repent of your sins and trust Him and His saving power. Never mind the bad habits or misdeeds. He'll help you solve those problems later. It'll be easier than you expect, for you'll be a new person once you've been saved. 
come now, and don't delay. You need not wait another minute, as the hymn says, just as I am, and waiting not, to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Hymnologist Eric Routley made a more pastoral observation on what it means to come just as I am. There was a rich young man who came to Christ just as he was, but he had to resign himself, his hope of being a disciple, because he wanted Christ to leave him just as he was. There was a young fellow who came to Jesus and offered himself just as he was, but found that when it came to the point a domestic claims must first take priority. Ananias and Sophia provided an excellent example of this kind of limited liability, which is all a man will ever rise to as long as he came, claims to be good enough for Christ just as he is. But the wise and brave authorist of this hymn means nothing of this sort. Every verse contains the conviction that once a man has come, he must expect to be changed. Once the invitation has been accepted, a man will no longer be just as he was. For evangelist Billy Graham, it all came down to the invitation, the climatic point at the end of his crusade, when he invited people to leave their seats and make a decision for Christ. And it wouldn't be a Billy Graham invitation without Just As I Am, the slow-moving, soul-moving hymn that accompanied millions down the aisle and became Graham's signature anthem and title of his 1997 autobiography. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. The hymn's familiar verse goes, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Then in the refrain, each stanza, O Lamb of God, I come, is essentially a vehicle for moving people down the aisle to the point where the preacher is waiting to receive them. Said Carl Dahl, Jr., former executive of the Hymn Writers Society of the United States and Canada. By 1925, it appeared in at least 20 separate hymnals. In Dahl's survey of hymnals published between 1976 and 1996, it was found in 30 of 40 hymn books. Only Christmas carols were more popular. Graham's personal conversion connection to the hymn began at a pivotal moment in his life when in 1934 he experienced his own conversion in Charlotte, North Carolina. But it was actually the second hymn that was sang, almost persuaded now I believe, that prompted Graham down the aisle. On the last verse of that second song, I responded, Graham wrote in his autobiography, I walked down to the front, feeling as if I had lead weights attached to my feet, and stood in the space before the platform. Nevertheless, Just As I Am soon became Graham's go-to hymn for his own crusades. In fact, the one time he didn't use it, preferring instead to let the Holy Spirit move people out of their in silence at the 1966 crusade in London. There was a near mutiny from the press corps. 
For thirty nights we didn't have one note from the piano or the organ or one word of song from the choir, Barrows recalled. The reporters were saying, Give us back, just as I am. The silence is killing us. The silence is killing us. Through the years, the hymn came to embody Graham's easy invitation style that never featured much fire in Brimstrom rhetoric. It was more the lullaby moving softly over the crowd like the mist rolling over Graham's beloved North Carolina mountains. There is no coercion in this hymn, no wailing at heaven's gates, because you are still a sinner, said C. Michael Hahn, director of the sacred music program at Perkins School of Theology in Dallas. The message is a more positive one of unconditional acceptance. Although the hymn was well known long before Graham, it became so popular partly because he used it so much. At the same time, it became a beloved favorite of his associates and rank and file Protestants everywhere. George Beverly Shea, Graham's longtime crusade soloist, recalled a harrowing flight out of Newark, New Jersey in 2000 when he wasn't sure that he would ever touch the ground again. Clutching his wife's hand, he started to pray the text of the hymn. If this was our time to meet the Savior, wrote Shea in his 2004 book entitled How Sweet the Sound, that's the song I wanted to be singing. Shea died in 2013. The song was embraced by evangelists for its simplicity. Like Amazing Grace, said Mark Noel of the University of Notre Dame, it embodied the essence of evangelical theology. They're not deep hymns, he said, but they're solid hymns. Eliot's hymn was greatly admired by many people within her own lifetime. Shortly after her death, her brother, the Reverend Henry Eliot, famously said that in the course of his long ministry, I hope that I've been permitted to see much fruit of my labors, but I feel that far more has been done by the single hymn of my sister. And now let's continue our study of heaven. Do people in heaven know what's presently happening on earth? The answer is yes, at least to a certain degree. The martyrs in heaven appear to know what is still happening on earth, Revelation 6, 9 through 11, says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given to each one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little while until the fellow servants also and their brethren, that they should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. When Babylon is brought down, an angel points to events happening on earth and says, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you, seen in Revelations 18.20. 
Since he specifically addressed them, the clear implication is that the saints in heaven are watching and listening to what is happening on earth. There is the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah and praising God for specific events of judgment that have taken place on the earth. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Again, the saints in heaven are clearly observing what is happening on earth. When heaven's saints return with Christ to set up his millennium kingdom, Revelation 19, 11 through 14, And I saw heaven opened, and I behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and made war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. It would seem strange to think that they would have been ignorant of the circumstances on human, of human history taking place on earth. The picture of the saints heavenly blissful, unaware of what was transpiring on earth, where God was and his angels, and they themselves are about to return for the unlimit, the unultimate battle in the history of the universe, after which Christ would be crowned king. That contradicts clear indications in the context. But even apart from such indications, the notion of heavenly ignorance is ludicrous. When brought back to earth from heaven, in a surprise move done by God, which in the witch of Endor and Saul's wrongly call upon Samuel's spirit to visit them, Samuel was aware of what Saul had been doing and what he'd failed to do on earth. First Samuel 28-18 says, Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executeth his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Unless he was specially briefed on this, it follows he must have already been aware of it. When called from heaven to the transfiguration on earth, Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus about his death about to happen in Jerusalem. Luke 9.31 Who appeared in glory and speck of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem? They seemed fully aware of the contacts they stepped into, of what was currently transpiring on earth. And clearly they would go back to heaven remembering what they had discussed with their Creator and Savior. Hebrews 12.1 tells us, Run the race marked out for us, creating a mental picture of the Greek competitions which were watched in, intently by the throngs of engrossed fans sitting upon the high ancient stadiums. The great crowd of witnesses he speaks are clearly the saints who have gone before us, whose accomplishments, some of them recorded in, in previous chapters, on the playing field are now past. The 
imagery seems to suggest those saints, the spiritual athletes of old, are now watching us, cheering us from the stands of heaven. The witnesses are said to surround us, not merely to have preceded us. The unfolding drama of redemption, awaiting Christ's return, is currently happening on earth. Earth is center court, center stage, awaiting the consummation of Christ's return and the setting up of his kingdom. Logically, this seems a compelling reason to think those in heaven might see what is happening on earth. If in heaven we will be concerned with what God is concerned with, and his focus is on the spiritual battle on earth, why would we not witness his works there? Christ in heaven watches closely what transpires on earth, especially in the lives of God's people. Read Revelation chapter 2 and 3. If the sovereign God's attention are on the earth, why shouldn't those of his heavenly subject be? When a great war is transpiring, is anyone in their home country uninformed or unaware of it? When a great drama is taking place, do those who know the writer, producer, and cast, and have great interest in the outcome from watching it? Angels saw Christ on the earth. We see in 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the word, received up unto glory. There are clear indications angels know what was happening on earth. In Luke 1.26 says, And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And in 1 Corinthians 11.10, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. If angels, why not saints? Don't the people of God in heaven have as much vested interest in the spiritual events happening on the earth as angels do? Wouldn't the body of the bride of Christ in heaven be expected to be intensely interested about the rest of the body and bride of Christ now living on the earth? Abraham and Lazarus saw the rich man's agony in hell, as we see in Luke twenty-six, uh, Luke sixteen twenty-three twenty-six, and the and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in tormented, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. So if they wish to pass from heaven, hence you cannot. Neither can they pass to us. That would come from thence. If it is possible, at least in some cases, to see hell from heaven, why would people be unable to see earth from heaven? 
Christ said, There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine who do not need to. Luke fifteen seven says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Similarly, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke fifteen ten. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Who is doing the rejoicing into heaven in the presence of the angels? Doesn't it logically include the saints in heaven? Who would, who would most appreciate the joy and wonder of human con- conversion? If they rejoice over conversion happening on earth, then obviously they must be aware of what's happening on earth. Now, do people in heaven pray for those on earth? Based on scripture, scripture evidence I see, I believe that answer is yes. Christ, the God-man, is in heaven interceding for people on the earth, as we see in Romans eight thirty-four. Who is he that condemneth? Is It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that he is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. In at least one case, then, a person who has died and gone to heaven is now praying for those on earth. The martyrs in heaven, in Revelation 6.10, says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? He prayed to God, asking him to take specific action on earth. They are praying for God's justice on the earth which may have intercessory implications for their brethren now suffering on earth. The sense of connection and loyalty to and concern for the body of Christ, of which the saints in heaven are part with the saints on earth, would likely be enhanced by being in heaven, not eliminated by it. Ephesians 3.15 says, Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. In any case, we know that these saints who have died now in God's presence, actively praying concerning what is happening in heaven. Prayer is simply talking to God. Angels can talk to God. Therefore, angels pray. We will communicate with God in heaven, and therefore, we will pray in heaven, presumably more than we do now, not less. Our prayers will be more effective given our righteousness state as we see in James 5:16, confess your faults one to another, pray for another that you might be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The burden of proof lies on those who would argue saints in heaven cannot or do not pray for those on earth. On what biblical basis would we conclude this? Revelation 5:8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. This speaks of the prayers of saints in a context that may include saints in heaven, not just on earth. In any case, if saints are allowed to see some of what transpires on earth, and clearly they are, then it would seem strange for them not to intercede for them. 
while we are not told angels pray for the people, neither are we told they don't. It's a question of assumptions. If we assume heaven is a place of ignorance or disinterest in earth, then we will naturally assume those in heaven couldn't or wouldn't pray for the people there. In contrast, if we believe it's a place of interest and observation of God's program for the people on earth, and where the saints and angels talk to God, when we would naturally assume they pray to God for those on earth. These are my assumptions. Given the substantial evidence of Scripture to the contrary, the burden of proof is on those who argue people in heaven are unconcerned with and unaware of what is happening on earth. Does Scripture really teach this? Where? Or is it the belief that those in heaven are unaware of what happens on earth merely an assumption, one that over decades or centuries has been elevated by some into a doctrine, one not based on Scripture? I believe it is no more than a deduction based on a faulty premise, namely that for heaven to be happy, people in heaven can't know what's happening on earth. This argument is therefore worth taking a look at, but we promised we were promised that there would be no pain, no crying in heaven. How could we be aware of the bad things on earth? Surely it couldn't be heaven for us if we knew those things. I believe this argument is invalid for the following reasons. If heaven is for God and he knows exactly what's happening on earth, it's heaven for the angels and they know what's happening on earth. Angels in heaven see the torment of hell, but it doesn't minimize heaven. See Revelation 14.10. Abraham and Lazarus saw the rich man's agonies in hell, but it did not cause heaven to cease to be heaven. Luke sixteen twenty three through 26 And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. If one can see people in hell without ruining heaven, surely nothing he could see on earth could ruin it. Note Luke 16 is in the intermediate state before the end of the world and the resurrection. It does not therefore necessarily indicate those in the new heaven and new earth can see the eternal lake of fire. However, it suggests that currently in heaven, may be people may be able to see hell or at the very least be aware of its existence if this is true of heaven and hell is the same true of heaven and earth is there a chasm separating them and preventing direct intervention yet the ability to see what's happening in the other world the promise of no more tears or crying 
after the end of the world, after the great white throne judgment, after the old, older order of things has passed away, and there's no more suffering on the earth as we see in Revelations 21, 1 through 4, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard the great voice of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And the God shall wipe away the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, neither, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This passage is not a valid argument for tearlessness in the present heaven, but only in the new heaven and earth. This doesn't mean that those presently in heaven must be unaware of what's happening on earth. Certainly those in heaven are not frail beings whose joy can be maintained only by sheer ignorance of what is going on in the universe. In fact, even if our knowledge did produce some sadness in heaven, we don't know for sure it would, the old order hasn't yet passed away. Heaven is not in its final state. We should not begin by defining heaven as no sorrow, no concern, no knowledge of suffering, and then dismiss any spiritual indications that undermine that assumption. Christ's greed for people on earth this is in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven through 39 O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoneth them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chicken on her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. In John 11, 33 through 36, we read, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold, how he loved them. Is he no longer capable of doing so because he is in heaven? Or does he still hurt for his people when they suffer? If he can hurt for them, could not we? It is one thing to no longer cry because there is nothing left to cry about. It is something else to no longer cry when there is ongoing suffering on earth. Going into the presence of Christ surely does not make us less compassionate, but more. Therefore, it's possible that even with the predominant joy presently in heaven in light of the fact that there is so much evil and pain in the universe, there could be periodic expression of sadness in heaven until the evil and pain is permanently gone. Since God is continuously at work on earth, observing saints would have a great deal to praise him for, including people's spiritual transformations. Luke fifteen seven ten. 
I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Likewise I say unto you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. If there is rejoicing in heaven about what happens on earth, aren't the redeemed allowed to participate in the rejoicing? How could they participate unless aware of the cause for celebration? In conclusion, happiness in heaven is based not on ignorance, but on perspective. We will be with Christ, see accurately, and live in a sinless environment. Heavenly happiness cannot be based on a fundamental ignorance of what is happening on earth or even in hell. But what about Isaiah sixty-five seventeen, which says in heaven the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind? Isaiah sixty-five seventeen must be weighed against a dozen other passages of Scripture previously cited in, in this uh, study, uh, as well as the one just uh, just before here. If they clearly teach some things from earth will be remembered in the eternal state, then properly understood, this verse does, does not contradict them. Furthermore, whatever the verse means, it's, it specifically comes after the new heaven and the new earth, not before. Hence, it has no bearing at all on the question of whether saints presently in heaven can witness events happening on the earth. Isaiah sixty-five seventeen says, and is linked to the previous verse, For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. This does not suggest literal lack of memory, as if the omniscient God couldn't recall the past. God knows everything. Rather, it is like God saying, I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four, And they shall teach no more his man, his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. It means he will choose not to call to mind or to hold against us our past sins. In eternity, past sins will no longer plague us or God, nor interfere with God's accepting of us. Likewise, both God and we will be capable of, of not recalling our past troubles and sorrows and sins in a way that would diminish the wonders of heaven. However, it seems likely that recalling the reality of such troubles and sorrows and sins would set a sharp contrast to the glories of heaven, as darkness does to light and as hell does to heaven. This contrast would be lost if the sense of sorrow is forever eternally forgotten. If we ever forget we were desperate sinners, how could we appreciate the depth and meaning of Christ's glorious work for us? It is even impossible that an awareness of the perfect justice of hell will enhance the depth of gratitude to God for those in heaven. Even in the new heaven and new earth, there are memorials to the twelve tribes and the apostles. Revelations twenty-one twelve to 14 says, And had a wall great and high, 
and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Christ's nail-scarred hands and his feet in his eternal resurrection body proved his suffering and redemption in, in the fact it was necessitated by our sins will no longer be forgotten. John twenty twenty four through 29 says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with him when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see the hand in the prints of the nails, and put my fingers in the prints of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I'll not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were with him, and Thomas with them. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut. And he stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered, and said unto him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, and hast believed, blessed are they who have not seen, yet they have believed. Hence these passages clearly preclude the will remember nothing on earth because of Isaiah sixty-five seventeen. Every believer's crowns and rewards will continuously remind us of acts of faithfulness to God done in that window of opportunity on earth. While God will wipe away the tears and sorrow attached to this world, the drama of God's work in human history will not be erased from our minds. Heaven's happiness will not be dependent on our ignorance of what really happened on earth. Rather, it will be greatly enhanced by our informed appreciation of God's glorious grace and justice in what really happened on earth. This concludes our study about what heaven's going to be like and what it is like. And I hope you enjoyed this look into the scripture about heaven. Heaven awaits those of us who have put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You might say to me, Glenn, what does that mean about faith? Lots of people claim to have faith. Well, I once saw an illustration that shows what the Bible means about faith. This fellow pulled out a chair and he showed it to everyone. He said to those gathered, I believe this chair will hold me up. He walked about it, he looked it over, and he said, but it's not holding me. He went around several minutes describing this chair and its strength and discussed all the physics and science that went into designing it and on to the manufacturing process. He spoke at length of how he trusted all that went into it to making that chair strong enough to hold his weight 
but it still wasn't holding him. Then he climbed up into the chair and he stood in the seat. And again he looked at the audience and he said, I believe this chair will hold me. This is what is meant by trusting Jesus and having faith that will give you everlasting life. It's not complicated. It's just real. Put your faith in Jesus and trust him today for your eternal salvation. Next week, we will conclude the, this series of study with the other side of the coin. What will hell be like? Now, Glenn, how about you play Just As I Am on the alto saxophone? Jesus is standing at the portals of heaven waiting for you. His heart begs you to turn from your sin and destruction. Let your heart drift, drift with me in prayerful melody. For those who need Jesus, Holy Spirit, convict our hearts. Move across this land with great conviction. Thank you. 
Preparing Our Hearts for Worship podcast. We love it when you visit. We always look at the old-time hymns, the authors and events related to the writing of their songs. We hope you have been informed and enjoyed yourselves. Our music has been distributed to the web, and you can hear it by searching the web for the music of Glenn Dawson. And now help us out with YouTube. Go over to YouTube and search for us by searching for the music of Glenn Dawson. When you get there, punch the like button. And then we'd like you to subscribe so we can become partners with YouTube. We need 4,000 hours of watching in 12 months and 1,000 subscribers. So click that like button, click that subscribe button, and you can also click the bell if you'd like to be reminded of when our new songs come out. We appreciate that so much. It'll help us get our channel going. Our program is a non-profit organization and part of the Glen Dawson Evangelistic Association. We're dedicated to sharing Jesus with everyone. We enjoy hearing from you and you can write to us on any platform you hear us on. You can also go over to our webpage. Remind you, it's under construction. WordPress is helping us get it all arranged and uh, uh, it's going to be really nice when it's done. But uh, pardon our dust as we are are getting it constructed. Our webpage is at Glenn Dawson, E-A, that's G-L-E-N-N, D-A-W-S-O-N-E-A.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week on Preparing Our Hearts for Worship. God God be be with with you. you. Goodbye Goodbye for for now. now.